Hello, everyone. This is an exciting and special episode of uh, a fairly queer podcast because I can't find Sam and we had an appointment. But we do have uh, Isabella Costanza, who I um, plucked from our lovely conversations on Instagram because we were really getting into an important conversation about um, classical music as a genre and as a strange, um, beautiful, complicated, and uh, oftentimes racially, uh, it can be insidious in, in, in the world of racism and classism and other isms uh, because, and I just want to also give you a disclaimer, Isabella, I just cut off of reading White Fragility. So it's all so really real right now. But um, we were talking about how much we love and still have these complicated issues we're working through with classical music. This is especially true for you. So why don't you um, bring us up to speed about your, your life as a queer violist a queer a queer violist with um uh with of uh magical unicorn circumstances please the floor is all yours well thank you so much for yeah thanks so much for having me it's of course a pleasure to speak about this stuff i feel like it doesn't get really any attention in the media um so it's really important i think to to bring it to this to a platform um so I'm originally from uh, Palo Alto, California. That's where I was uh, born and raised. Well, I was born somewhere else, but I was ra- raised there. Um, my parents are classical musicians. Um, uh, very different type of stuff that I'm up to these days. Uh, it was sort of plugged into my brain to go down the convention of what it's like to go through training programs, youth orchestras, very much follow, uh, I guess you could even call it like a binary of like a path. Yeah. Right. right. If both your parents are classical musicians, now your your dad plays cello, mm-hmm. and your mom plays v- v- violin. Violin. Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. So as a violist, you just got to be the trio. We did, and it was cute. I was sort of paraded around when I was um, a wee one. Um, I was sort of. Uh, marketed as this little this little kid that could like sing Brahms symphonies because that's literally all I knew. <laughs> and then um, yeah, and then it was sort of put into my brain that this is what this is life. There's no other choice. And a lot of people are sort of in this environment, and then it sort of ends up that they find a calling in some other field or doing something else. And I really think that this is this is my calling is to do this. Um, and it's really interesting to have to separate predetermined path from what you want when your art is so much of you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, uh, I just geek out over violas. I've had some lovely folks who, in my life, um, when I was in Pittsburgh, I had a violist friend at Carnegie Mellon. We had so much fun. Like, being around instrumentalists, especially string players, as someone who studied voice, was mm-hmm. so fun. And so many of my favorite opera singers, like Barbara Bonney was a cellist, mm-hmm. and Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson was a violist 
in the Bay Area, and I believe in the San Jose Symphony mm-hmm. in her 20s before she went to New England Conservatory. And That's we my got all the. Oh my gosh! You you have been living you you have been <laughs> sniffing around, sniffing around, following the the energy of uh, the the late but supremely awesome, uh, Lorraine Hunt Lieberson, who is mm-hmm. one of my all time tops. I think there's something about singers who have learned string instruments where the interaction of like, of of singing and string technique is so interesting. Mm-hmm. To me, and maybe we can get on that geeky, that geeky subject at some point. But also, you have you have like a a, a queer journey, yeah. Because I, I want I just wanted to plug that you had just finished getting off a voting, uh, uh voting for uh, Trinity the Tux contest. So let's talk about like queer journey, queer expression, and how these things may or may not tie in. Well, it's it's really interesting because um, I was out as bi from like a really, really young age um, and I kind of was serially dating men. And I actually I want to just plug ContraPoints really quickly because she is actually someone who really helped me get in touch with a lot of things via her content um, to sort of realize things about myself. Um, and then I realized this year that my, my best friend is my duo partner, and she is like this amazingly fierce lesbian icon for me. And my other best friend is also a fierce lesbian icon for me, who's a violinist. And we all play strings, so that's kind of a, a cool little thing. Ooh, queer string. Queer, queer string duos. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. And then I sort of just came to the realization this year that it was time to finally come out as like a lesbian, which was a really hard thing for me to like come to grips with because um, I feel like in the string world, there is a lot of internalized homophobia. This is terrible. <laughs> you would think it'd be like, I just, I, you know, again, we're in like, we're in music school, we're in conservatory, we're in a big music program. And the the instrumentalists and vocalists, we all just love to do these weird generalizations. So my my string player generalizations were a combination of very um, uh, emotionally uh, lo- emotional live wires with heavy streaks of melancholia. <laughs> I like whether it was the cellist especially, but some of my violin friends were just like, "Wow, your feelings and." Your feelings and your nerves are just true, true. But I found it so interesting that the people who that who would take up the violin, like that's a kind of a magical alchemy. And it's no use, no use generalizing. It can be totally chill as fuck, straight <laughs> players, which I which I know were there. I had some of my best times partying with string players. We know how but to also, it. yes, that is the thing, though. This, 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 this amazing thing where, like, this, this instrument, you and this instrument have the symbiosis. I mean, instrumentalists who go deeply professional have to learn to be symbiotic, and let it be, and let it uh, be an aspect of the person, the performer, and the artist. But like being a queer. You know, as a queer string player, and like, do you do you identify as a fab or or like? Well, how... it's a it's a journey right now. Um, yeah. 
it's it's been so strange like the reason i'm wearing a dress right now is literally because it's quarantine and i haven't like gotten to go shopping it's a stunning it's a, if it, i wish everyone could see it's a stunning piece i just absolutely love it it's giving me very 18th century which is a place we were talking about oh absolutely a very pivotal time in history yeah. but um being a queer person i i identify currently as um afab i use the pronouns she and they um interchangeably um and it's been interesting to sort of navigate this under the guise of like the oppressive nature of the system uh, <laughs> well happy non-binary people's day exactly viva la différence yes like viva la différence viva viva les genres multiples i mean sure we can celebrate this. I, I identify as gender floral, gender kaleidoscopic. I'm just having such a problem even wanting to wear dude pants. I'm really having a, a strong reaction against dude pants. So I'm like only wearing cotton. I'm one of, I'm one of those creatures who like, who like has, who has a very, um, very much based on the spheres of the days and the months. Like I like to be... I'm okay with being fluid, fluidish, fluidish by day, but totally, I need a dress at night. Oh yeah, no, I think that's it's so interesting, part. like being yeah. this way, right? Being mm -hmm. in the being in the sparkling unicorn world of like, well, I just can't be, I can't just be one thing. Uh, it's not me. I'm not one thing. My gender's not one thing. It's, it's not even two things. It's more than two things. <laughs> Well, kaleidoscopic, I really like that word. Um, but when I, I started drag in, I want to say April, April 10th is my like drag anniversary. And actually, I started doing it because of the quarantine couture. <laughs> oh, yay. Yeah. I mean, oh, we have indeed. I have, I have, of course, I, it's been a couple of, it's been a couple of moments, but I have so enjoyed watching people turn out and show out or quarantine couture so thank mm -hmm. you for that oh yeah it's been so fun and it kind of just spiraled from there and then um i got booked randomly for a media meltdown show last month yay and it was awesome they're actually sf so that was kind of cool um i was in the bay area and then it just kind of kept going and then i right now i just finished the, uh, the online version of a summer music festival which uh, it was really crazy and it gave me they gave me an opportunity to sort of pitch a project and I'm under the impression that there is an untapped market in like the weird drag community for new music like new classical music oh sure because we're, people are doing so much I've, I probably am not calling it the right thing but that, that Sasha Valor everyone's everyone's experimenting with projections and projection uh -huh. art kind of like new uh, like new micro multimedia because mm -hmm. it has to be camera friendly for quarantine. And um, it very much fascinates me, but I've also learned like through my associations that um, one, it's always important to experiment, but two, if there's someone else who has a special talent in, in like visual video and projection art editing to let them do that and just pay an artist. <laughs> whatever you can for, for their talent and skill because I'm like one of these people who grew up working class so like if I do something creative I feel like I have to do it all myself oh, out of this weird lack 
with this weird lack consciousness. So like, no, like make it a community project. It's quarantine time. People want to feel connected. So even if even if we can't pay each other the no, the normal rates per se, which is a whole economic hullabaloo, yeah. the least we can do is collaborate. So please tell me more about some. Do you have a specific idea you want to put out into the universe? Yes. So I um this I am actually pitching this to this board of trustees in a couple of days, but. I, so I've been sort of thinking a great way to represent queer art is to, to do queer art. And I think drag yeah. is just fantastic. There's not enough women or, uh, you know, gender nonconforming folks that do it, I think. Um, and also going with that sort of side of it in classical music as well. I hardly know any classical string players who identify as anything like other than the norm because, um, that's mm. sort of the culture that surrounds it. So I was thinking just let's give a big gender fuck to both categories in one, yeah. one project. Um, and I was thinking we can't play an orchestra right now. I really, really miss that. I really, really miss chamber music. I miss playing with people and experimenting with new sounds. I miss talking shop with people in the context yeah. of rehearsal. Um, so I was thinking there's a way that we could play these works and continue these works in basically finding a way to arrange large scale pieces for smaller ensembles that are trackable on like Audacity or Zoom. And I was thinking that because of, like you're saying, the visuals that are so important right now, if there's a way to sort of fuse the visual appeal of somebody dressed in like a crazy wig, like doing like some kind of interpretive dance or even playing an instrument, I think that would be a really cool way to like kill the, like keeping the orchestra aspect alive, yeah. as well as like having a and doing art. multimedia things. I mean, I think probably in certain certain musics of the past eighty or so years, eighty to hundred years in classical music, there have been people who have really made this. Oftentimes, it's in conjunction with dance. Yeah. Right, but sometimes it is in conjunction, and I mean, new new operas of often been conceived with great artistic like the first one that comes to mind is Stravinsky and Cocteau yeah right so yeah. I think Stravinsky would applaud applaud you certainly I think other I think other opera composers contemporary and a generation or two ago would also find this a really a really laudable Way to go. And then, like, the queerness in classical music. Like, I went into musicology with a specific bent on finding, doing some kind of queer archaeology. Awesome. Right? And depending on who you learn your music history from, you'll know folks like Suzanne uh, Cusick for mm -hmm. early modern uh, stuff, as well as my mentor, Susan McClary, on Baroque music and feminism and opera. And there's a um, uh, Judith Pereno at Cornell, Mitchell Morris at UCLA. There's now a, a whole, I'm sure, a whole other uh, jet set that's around my age, who if I had stayed in musicology and, and, <laughs> and uh, sacrificed my soul to the system, I would, I would hopefully be somewhere pretty nifty with all my colleagues. But as a recovering and independent queer scholar, performer, you know, most of my interest is in recovering, recovering our codes, right? Because sometimes it's only, you're not going to get like, hi, I'm Tchaikovsky. I'm, <laughs> I'm, 
I'm I'm a Russian sodomite who t- feels terribly about themselves. Right. Right. Or like I'm Schubert, and I and I may be some sort of uh, uh, gender variant pan, and the only thing we have is a group of my friends who are known to be light in the loafers using mm-hmm. bird coats. Right. <laughs> and this is what we do. This is what I did as a musicologist. Like, oh wait, Corelli left his. His violins to Matteo Tornari, who That's was his second, his second violinist, and you know how sexy Corelli is. Oh, how do sexy I? that 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 writing is. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, ooh, but uh, but I mean, just like that's that's what made me so crazy about Baroque music is that it's the strange. This strange, like semi-geometric world of like emotional, emotional outbursts within these, these, um, these kind of these repetitive rules, right? That's why some people like, um, like I've I had one lesson with a great soprano, because some because some of these great opera singers are on on hiatus right now. Her name is Janine Debeek. She did recently did a DVD of Handel's Rodolinda, I think at Opera de Lille, with um, uh, a Juilliard contralto who I actually fangirl and chat to named Avery Amaro. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think it, she's singing at um, uh, Santa Fe Opera. Is it possible? Impossible. Yeah. Possible. I actually grew up there. My mom plays in that orchestra. So wow. I grew up there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But so I, uh, I had a, I had a very stern but wonderful and supportive lesson, and to like just the in- incredible, like the incredible journey of 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 classical musicians, and the discipline. It's just something that like, I I had to I had to turn to musicology because that's what I had the discipline plus passion for. But uh, now I'm getting off track. Queer, queer, <laughs> queer folk of some sort in musical history. Do you have who have you found, or 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 hope to find in various worlds that help helps you feel connected as a queer person to the classical genre? Well, right now I'm I'm so disenchanted with uh, a lot of stuff that's happened in in like the past like hundred or two hundred years. But I find that. Definitely people in like the minimalism movement that were starting to be like, hey, I'm a queer person. I'm part of this like experimental thing. Um, mm-hmm. And here I am using my queerness to sort of pioneer a new direction. Like Julius Eastman, for example, who I love. I love him. He's a queer black uh, composer that died in a park, uh, homeless and totally forgotten about until about 10 years ago or something. Um, and he's just his work is so poignant, especially now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I actually had my first introduction to Julius Eastman at a um, at this multiple piano uh, concert that a couple of my newer queer friends took me to um, in this wonderful church near near. It was I guess it was in oh my gosh the Tenderloin. Uh-huh. It was like a ride off of uh, Van Ness, uh-huh. and it was uh, amazing. I was just, it's just, it's just a world I pass in and out of, you know, classical works of 
the past few generations. But like, I guess I'm I'm one of those early. It's funny how early, like early modernists. Oh, hold on. It's probably Sam. Ooh. Well, well, he's gonna have to edit this. <laughs> Hi, Sam. We're about uh, twenty minutes in and recording. <laughs> what? Oh, and then it didn't happen. <laughs> oh, Sam, you're having a time space slip. That's okay. We're gonna talk. We're gonna continue this, and then and then you can. Well, if you if if you want, well, I think I'll have to give you the um, I'll have to give you the um the way to get in, and I'm not sure I know how to do that. Well, we can try. If we can't do that, then and then me and Isabella are just gonna like do it, and then I'll send it. Absolutely okay. Yeah, yeah. Give yourself a break, Sam. If you didn't realize that today was Tuesday, I've also had back pain for the past four days. I can like barely get myself at a ninety-degree angle. So oh, like shit's going down and. <laughs> I'm not really mad. I'm, uh, you just, I'll look forward to you editing this and us coming back and doing more fun things. All right, Sam? I'm terribly sorry. It's okay. I just, I mean, need I say more? I just truly thought it was Monday. I know. I know. I, I had a wonky day yesterday. Don't worry about it, Sam. We'll talk. We'll have fun. I'll talk to you later. Okay, okay sweetie? My I, I shall. Okay, bye. I don't know whether that's going to stay on the podcast. Or you would be kind that of was cute. very cute. <laughs> okay. All right. There we go. I gave that a little space. So, um, yeah, queer composers, queer musicians, like, especially yeah. in classical music. There's this, why does it have to be this? white, cis, hetero. Why does classical music have this weird... Is it just the white supremacy thing? I'm just going to go straight in. Like, <laughs> oh, is classical God, music just, w- like, way too much of a banner of white supremacy? I think... I have some, like, really conflicting thoughts about this because it's been... Yeah. Okay, I was talking about this yesterday. I currently am... And, and I'm not sure if this, this part should stay in or not, but I'm going to just say it anyway. We can edit it. So, awesome. So I currently am at uh, a school in Toronto getting an artist diploma um, and hopefully starting a career here. Um, and I got here after being at NEC for six years where there are three departments. There's a jazz department, which I think they are renaming to something a little bit more culturally sensitive. Yeah. Um, and then a, 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 a department that's called the third stream department or the contemporary improvisation, which deals with more of like the experimental cool stuff that's going on in yeah. new music. And so I was around all that cross pollination. I only hung out with those people really when I was there. Um, and then I come to this school that I'm at right now, which is an exclusive string slash brass winds, percussion, piano, school, only classical music. Um, and the demographic was Aryan, like 90%. <laughs> and oh, that was and that was 
like even in Canada, yeah, even in can even in Canada, you guys right. are just like extra like like even keeled, right? Isn't that what it's about? Um, oh, it's about a <laughs> it's a booty. Oh my gosh, Can Canada! I love Canada, but also like I'm watching a Canada's Drag Race, and I'm like. Uh, is 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 it the cold? Is it the white? Like, how do people definitely a little more emotionally subdued? Uh-huh. Then again, I'm having a very real journey with my emotional landscape and the emotional aspects of my personality with oh, all yeah. that's going on. So, <laughs> but it, right, like getting down to this thing, this thing that we were actually talking about, like white supremacy and classical music. It's real. All I can think of before we got on the call today was like, the Baroque period is, is like the colonialist expansive period. Everyone started really getting in on it. Like, I don't know how Italians, Italy was sort of okay with, its, with itself, but the Atlantic coastal countries are just so hungry and like oh, yeah. processing processing that right and especially for me because i come from like english and french and germans the germans took a, l- a little while longer but they were immigrating mm-hmm. in the 18th century um and that like classical music was also stealing from the peasant cultures right oh all yeah. those dances in the baroque and renaissance and classical periods like a like a jig is a jig. A jig is a jig. Like oh, a yeah, full blown, yeah. full blown like Celtic European island jig. Yeah, can I say a deep cut about something? Please. A- Let's start oh. with the deep cuts and then we'll start for start forgiving ourselves and finding some sort of decent middle ground, please. <laughs> right. Well, the deep cut, like, this is like a nomenclature thing. So I, I was a violin major when I was at NEC, and I switched to viola about two years ago. Oh. Which is very cool. So I've been playing the music of the good, old, faithful J.S. Bach for as long as I've been alive, basically. Yeah. And I'm playing the cello suites now, because that's more conventional uh, to be played on the viola. And there are these names, their movements are all named um, in, like, the, 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 all the suites have like a format, as I'm sure you know. Right, like right. Have... Especially whether they're French or, but they're they're generally named after court dances. Yeah, and yeah. there's um there's a courant in every single one. But I'm playing the fifth suite out of six right now, and um this is very interesting because the courant is actually a corrente. Corrente, one of my favorite 17th century dance pieces. Mm-hmm. And it's totally different. And that's actually, those suites are so strange anyway, because yeah. there's the speculation that his wife wrote them. <gasps> yes, mm-hmm. Anna Magdalena? Yes. She's oh my gosh, now. come on, AM. Yes, from the grave. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh. And I mean, the things that Mozart's sister didn't get to do. And Nanarol is like a yeah. boss bitch. I really look up to her. There was oh. that film made about her recently that's just awesome. Okay, that was a that was a really brilliant intuitive reminder for me to like get out of my get out of my box. And yes, Nanarol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean it's just this combination of things. 
women having such a hard time. It's really this issue. Like, and then we were talking about the way the way to really zero in, at least, and for me until until like the mid nineteenth century, is that opera kind of remains the paramount form, and instrumental composers are having to argue this this new philosophical wave, right? We know in music history that opera had words. It connected yeah. to many classes. It actually could it was it's really much more in the way of the way musical theater is now. Mm-hmm. And it was internationalized. So like people like the the cast of operas would go on tours. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't necessarily be Mozart, but it might be, you know, uh uh Felice oh my gosh, or is it if it's not Salieri, oh my God, I'm trying to think of 1770s and 1780s composers of, of opera. But oh, I there's Handel? I, well, Handel. Well, I mean, Handel never, Handel's, Handel's singers toured. Yeah. And Handel never toured. I feel, I maybe it's my 17th century thing where Cavalli toured around Europe and into Austria. Uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. The singers and the productions would tour around, and that's early, early opera. That was the stuff of my musicology um, research. So, like, opera has this way of being moving around, but being very imperialistic. (laughs) Especially before we started reflecting on ourselves. There's so many exoticism operas in Vivaldi. Mm -hmm. And then Mozart wrote The Abduction. Right, right. (laughs) <laughs> right, and the only thing that we, I I loved our conversation about what we were dealing with with Don Giovanni. Oh, definitely. So I, I if if you if you're willing to go there, if you didn't have the other deep cuts about <laughs> about like your journey, I feel like we could definitely do a deep cut into Don Giovanni because it's such a seminal, weird. It's like a weird, brilliant black hole of of classical music. Well, the music is, is, is just amazing. I, I love, I think that that is just, it deals with morality. It yeah. deals with death. <laughs> right. It deals, it deals with sexual violence. Yeah. Which is a lot of production sort of skirt around that. Which How is like... do you? How <laughs> do you of, though? Well, because it's like men are pursuing women. Like that's, that's normal, right? It's like, it's normal to like, have this culture where like you can come you can make women a commodity and scurry after them and we can like laugh at that and that's seen in a lot oh. of other operas too oh but but it's not but it's such a weird thing like to me don giovanni is like like it's always worth listening to i get back to don giovanni so much because um one um it's a to me it it strikes a big me too chord and Two, Mozart, I think, I you know, despite the fact that I don't want to concede to conspiracies about him going too far and, like, untangling classism and deep Habsburg occult magic, which I feel like <laughs> La Clemenza di Tito yeah. and uh, Die Zauberflöte mm-hmm. actually do. It's like, oh, okay. well, if, if, I'm, if I'm sickly and I'm in and out of the money, why don't I just bust the balls of the the elite mm-hmm. could mozart have actually been trying to bust the balls of the elite by like 
like opening up Freemasonic rituals in the magic mm-hmm. blue. Oh, and there's I nothing played, so weirdly yeah. like so it's, there's something so weird about Mozart. I feel like he like like he would try he tried to be on the edge, but of course, like you know, biographically he was a bit of a philanderer. Mm-hmm. He had his issues with loving the ladies too. So how much of Mozart is in the count? How much of Mozart is in uh, Don Giovanni? We ask these weird musicological and music criticism questions because it's such a it's such a, w- a weird, uncomfortable thing, and it really has to do with so many of the things we're facing now. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's interesting because, like, I I I mean, this is like a whole other topic, and you touched on it before in a previous episode of your podcast, but. Um, you know, I think that cancel culture can go all the way back to, like, the foundation of classical music and the imperialist roots that sort of go along with that. And I think that that is sort of what's contributing to people condemning this art form right now yeah. is that you can you can trace the hypocrisy. Like, is there hypocrisy in Mozart? Well, yes, it is the it actual is. evidence, right? Yeah. Classical music is a, is a whole argument for this for this gross white supremacy. Absolutely. And like a hierarchical understanding of music and a total, like in my, I think I've been in school, how long have I been in school? Seven years of being in music school. I have Mm -hmm. never taken a formal class that explains anything about non-Western music aside from my own explorations with just intonation and uh, like syntonic commas and weird other technical stuff like that. Tuning things though, because that is where we were also saying it's like, Classical music, as we know it, if you looked at the old, um, if you looked at the old theory books or something that came close to theory, right, in the late medieval and Renaissance period, anyone who was involved in this art, even though it was associated with the aristocracy, it um, it was also a mystical thing. It was something that, like a nun, a nun like uh, like Hildegard von Bingen. Oh, it would be her. one of the great ancient arts that she, as a possibly queer, or at least full-blown feminist uh, Christian mystic, mm-hmm. you know, like if you if you wanted if you want to look for for queers in Christianity, look to the mystics. <laughs> oh yeah, the non-binary, non-dualistic, talking about a feminine side of the divine, mm-hmm. like that's some good witchy queer musical shit. But it goes back to like. Um, Pythagoras mm-hmm. and the way that music was meant to be a healing. It was meant to be something that a that a medicine person, a wise person, could study within Mediterranean culture. Mm-hmm. But we know Mediterranean culture has so long been syncretic, mm-hmm. right? Right. There were people on boats for thousands and thousands of years. It mm-hmm. was very mixed, and so the idea that like classical music already comes from this rich philosophical mystical um space but it's a very syncretic space this Mm -hmm. is one of the deepest ways that i'm able to not apologize i'm not an apologist for the racism in classical music but i think we are like the indo-european you know uh european cultures for a couple of thousands of years this was Hopefully some sort of equivalent to what was maybe happening in East Asia. There were mm-hmm. local music, but then there were refined musics for yeah. people who had people who were on a refined philosophical spiritual path. I don't mm-hmm. know if you have any if you have anything that um, resonates with you. 
about the sort of like spiritual meditative path of what uh-huh. we would call like refined music. That's probably just as problematic a term, but it happens all around the world, right? Yeah. It happens where there are more sophisticated sophisticated not better indigenous cultures are highly sophisticated if you believe that the shamans were interdimensionally abled right mm-hmm. they're witches of all genders right and all of our indigenous cultures from the celts to the deep the deep ancient chinese to the deep ancient uh, islander cultures in americas mm-hmm. so um to me there's something in classical music that calls to me as a as a meditative uh, contemplative and healing path. Well, yeah, I, I totally agree with that in every way. And I think that there are certain reasons why certain intervals and, uh, you know, progressions, like, for example, like the circle of fifths, it's like, from a physics standpoint, there's, I, I read this really fascinating article about, like, when I was doing a project a couple of years ago, about why the circle of fifths sort of appeals to our ears and like what it does for like hormonal release in our brains. Wow. I should see if I could find it. It's a really fantastic article. Right, because I mean, uh, like if you think of sound a little more geometrically, going through the circle of fifths, if you don't know what that is, folks, you can easily go on YouTube. <laughs> but it's going through a cycle of chords that's a lot like uh, Pachelbel's canon. Mm-hmm. There's these definite like, it, it would look very geometrical. Like you go down a couple of steps and you go up a step. You go down, you go up, you go up and forth. So you go down, up and fifth. So you go down and forth and down and fifth. If you really want to know, DM me because I'm that nerd. But it really, that's another reason I think like Baroque music doesn't get its Pythagorean chops enough. Because mm-hmm. if you think of the way that oh, yeah. we deal with, the way that especially English speaking an American culture has dealt with like bla- black music. Oh yeah. And the way that like, right, like uh, you take local culture and then you repackage it. Well, 500 years ago, they were repackaging new world songs that they had gotten right from the Americas. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had been taking, they had been mopping stuff from Northern Africa and the Near East and the Silk Route for hundreds of years. Yeah. You can read a book about how how long, uh, how deep spicy food for medieval European aristocrats was a thing because <laughs> the Silk Road was still such a real thing, right? Uh-huh. We used to think we're so separated, but the, the separate cultures were local cultures and it was pretty class-based. Like mm-hmm. the aristocratic, what mm-hmm. we would call the internationalist mercantile culture mm-hmm. has a couple millennia running. Mm-hmm. A couple oh, millennia running. So classical music is this weird thread, of course, but it's on, unfortunately, it's on the white narrative, which too much gets normalized and centralized. Absolutely. And like, I, there's this whole debacle I found myself in a couple of years ago because I was taking these classes on spectral music, which is basically music that is based on like physics, which I thought was so so cool and it was interesting to me because i was looking at the places these these musics were sort of refined and distilled to to become like you know incredibly academic and um i spent a couple summers in paris uh for various reasons and there's um earcam that's an organization that like sort of does all this electronic stuff that has to do with the breakdown of sound and um it's so academic and but it like creates these things that are 
really quite beautiful, uh, mirroring the convention of like Turkish music, Byzantine Ooh, music. Like yeah. these micro, like these microtonal kind and and the uh so interesting you say this because like you're really talking about things and on my end of sound healing class work right. we have to deal with physics and frequencies and resonant chambers uh -huh. and knowing how this acts in the body An opera singer has to know the resonating chambers yeah or else you don't get the formant the the tone the that that um, focused sound that will go over any kind of orchestra, especially those heavier instruments. Mm -hmm. So we have, like, we have, we have this weird. I mean, uh, I know as a pretty part of my French fucking full blown white person, <laughs> like, classical music is my way to understand the history of indigeneity, as it would indigeneity, civilization, imperialism, and reflecting on that that mess and knowing when to say uh, this doesn't work for me anymore because it reflects something that I I am uh, dealing with which is uh, racism and institutionalized white supremacy but it's also like this is me studying my own history this is the in it, this is my indigenous music I could I also love of course you know like in like local uh, folk music Mm -hmm. I recently got to do some lessons in uh, my coursework with um, a, a singer who specializes in Bulgarian music, Sonia Draculic, mm -hmm. who's very well known for her band Stella Mara. Mm -hmm. And she speaks about just what you're talking about. Yeah. It's an interesting part of the world where like there's this, 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 like the, the, the voice is like a flame and it flickers and has this passion. It has all the elements. You can like your voice can have the grain, right? You could mm -hmm. be a raspy or a very clean singer of these very, these refined but powerful and very spiritually evocative singing styles. Mm -hmm. And then it goes back to violin, yeah, and string instruments. I just want to totally bring it back to there because the <laughs> oud from the Near East, the way the 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 violin we associate it with, with early modern Italy. Mm -hmm. But she ain't, they ain't just that. Yeah, not just Cremona. Like. <laughs> no, not just Stradivari. No. Well, it's, it's very interesting because I, I feel like the voice and string instruments like are often the, the, the vehicles for this type of music because there's no fixed pitch. And it, it's very right. interesting, too, because I, I noticed that a lot of these, so being around like composers all the time, there's a lot of overthinking that you end up seeing, and oh, this. Oh. <laughs> and I've dated only composers really in my life, so <laughs> it's been quite oh. a journey. <laughs> um, but I've noticed that you know a lot of these, the reasons that I know about this stuff, is because there have been like a number of white men from the past sixty years that have found a calling to discover the discovering these things and then reframing them kind of in a way that appeals to academics, which I think is, you know, I have mixed feelings about that. I think it's good yeah. that it opens the door. Um, however, if you look at someone like Lou Harrison, this percussion like, extraordinaire, there's a lot of like gamelan music that he writes. That's mm -hmm. just, it's like oh, I went to like, oh. yeah, 
<laughs> right, like, and reflecting on it's like, okay, we as human beings know that we can be inspired by things, influenced by things, or think of it as a great novel, uh, a great novelty to bring into the market. Especially white people, we have to deal with with these things, and they aren't always conscious, you know. But it's the same way that I think, like, like what was. I, I guess it's because my obsession with Mozart has been so real and I'm trying to find, like, there's market stuff because Turkey was, was, was moving on Europe in the, in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. So they had a very weird relationship. I mean, Turkey's been in the Euro-Mediterranean Euro consciousness for a long time. And it had a weird thing. And white people have weird ways of like, how about we just take your music and do weird things with it? Not white <laughs> Western or Christian neighbors, you know? And then you get, right. oh, and then you get like uh, uh, Handel and Luli operas about right, non-Western right. female sorceresses. And then the male Christian oh, uh, uh, crusaders oh. coming back. And it breaks my heart and it hits something very weird. And and sad and like uh, very mixed up about how I I don't know. Sometimes the opera can be like a great witchy goddess cult, and you find moments in opera for it. It can be mm-hmm. so feminist, even through these white dudes. Yeah. But sometimes it's just like, oh god. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I- Isabella, I would like your some of your final thoughts on like bringing queerness and all all the beautiful all the beautiful shades of melanin from the bluest nordic to the to the deepest riches of the the equator all of uh, all of us who've somehow bumped into classical music and still find it um, inspiring despite its complications what are your final what are your final um, uh, wishes and desires for this well, there's a lot. I mean, obviously, leveling the playing field to sort of open the door for people that, you know, especially Latinx and Black folks uh, to, to find a, a place in this tradition, because it was very formative in our society, despite how problematic it is. There's a lot of pop music. All, actually, all pop music, I would go as far to say, has some root in classical music. And it would be, it, I think that as a person of color, something I'm starting to realize is that uh, the cultures that we are surrounded by in, in our own life, we don't realize they're our culture until we realize there are other cultures out there. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I'm half Chinese. I don't necessarily identify super well with that side of myself, but I, you know, when I'm in like, when I'm outside of the context, I feel like I'm drawn to, to that side of myself and I don't yeah. possess it. It's not something I can take. Yeah. But a lot of people tend to observe cultures and, and appropriate them. And I do, I do think there is a way to not necessarily appropriate, but represent like represent and um, learn from cultural influence. Right. There's conversations. I always think of it as like a conversation, which is a sort of, show and tell my rule as a white person is that i don't go into uh non-white spaces uninvited i think Mm -hmm. there's probably some modifications as an ally that i can make right Mm -hmm. now but i think it's just like a thing about energy and about 
sacred space, right? Mm -hmm. Music creates sacred space. People's stories about their lives and who they are and where they come from, those are sacred stories that we've been telling for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Our ancestors from 7,000 years ago told stories about where we came from and they sang and they danced mm -hmm. and they may have taken some shrooms or some <laughs> magical concoction right. because they wanted, they wanted to be in touch with past, present, and future simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And we as queer musicians, we still can hold that space with all the, with all the necessary logic to not hurt anyone else's culture mm -hmm. and to be in conversation and like, who you are is really beautiful. Can we have musical conversations about yeah. where I'm from and where you're from? Tell me about where you're from and I'll tell you about where I'm from. And that I think is a really beautiful place for a lot of musical genres to, uh, to mm -hmm. build from. Yeah. And to just sort of sit down and I think, you know, I've met a lot of people at this point uh, from just various things that I've done who are, full of so much uh, rich history in their journeys. I've met people who where classical music has pulled them from poverty to the middle class. I've mm -hmm. met people who have had, who have said music has saved their lives. I think I'm, I actually would identify as someone who's like that. Um, and it's just, you know, the one I, this is going to sound so corny, but the one way musicians can always connect to each other is to just sit down and play something. Yeah, and that's so forgotten in classical music. And it's it, I was um, recently at a socially distant um, chamber music reading party, where I was with some people outside, it, distance very far apart from each other. Where we just sat down and we played some music, and I thought that was one of the most valuable things that's happened to me in the past three months. Yeah, which is yeah. really amazing. Right, it's just the deep, the deep the deep human and the deep soul work of like creating together. So thank you for creating this with me. Well, Isabella. thank you for having me. Oh, of course. Where can folks find you to get more of your viola playing your magical dragon otherwise? So my uh, Instagram for viola is my full name, which is Isabella C. Costanza. I also have a YouTube channel. Um, and my drag name is Obsidian Absurd. And Ooh, witchy, yes. witchy, Obsidian. <laughs> yes, that is me. And um, uh, my Instagram is just at Obsidian Absurd, spelled with an O. So that's... Lovely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Isabella. Maybe we can keep on making this a semi-regular thing because we can go so far. Yeah, We can go definitely. so far with it. And just the more, the more we come up with and the more we open up the conversation... I think we'll see magical things happen in our worlds of, of music and queer space. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, I am in a duo right now. Uh, oh, I should probably mention that too. I'm yes. in a duo with a harpist and there's so few works written for viola and harp that <gasps> we are committed to commissioning our friends who are gender nonconforming or uh, women identifying folks who are queer to sort of represent that. Um, and we're called Les Deux. Like -E Later. Yes. 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 Oh, well, thank you so much, Isabella. I'm going to hand my podcasting over to Alaska, who's due for one in three minutes. Great. So thank you again. I'm going to I'm going to send us off with thank you for listening to a fairly queer podcast. I'm Jeremy. Sam will be back next time. And Isabella will be all over the ethers and the interwebs and in person 
giving you viola string queer realness. Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. <laughs>